Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone that gives some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian's not optional. Cause when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. When he starts, he finishes with dedication, a work of art from Genesis to Revelation, from God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes. So clever we behold his endeavors unfold. The greatest story ever told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction. Yeah. And the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our affections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our depth, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. Yeah. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. Alright, great show on the floor for you guys today. Just get a couple things out of the way before we bring on our guest. Um, in August, I believe it's the second weekend of August in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is uh, about 30 minutes from where I'm at. 
Uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary will be doing their National Apologetics Conference. And I think this is uh, either the 20th or the 21st year, the, the longest-running uh, national conference on Christian apologetics going. And you're going to have some, some big-name uh, speakers there. I know uh, Dr. Norm Geisler is going to be there and Frank Turek and Jay Warner Wallace. It's going to be a really uh, – it's going to be a great time. I think it kicks off Thursday with the Women's Apologetics uh, conference will just be a whole day just uh, for the women, and then Friday and uh, Saturday will be the uh, kind of the general family conference. Starting that Saturday night, uh, we're going to be starting our probably our third or fourth uh, Ratio Christi Symposium. So as you folks know, I am with uh, Ratio Christi and a chapter director at Winthrop University. Every year, we put these symposiums on. And we have chapter directors from all over. Uh, we get the, the chapter directors from Berkeley, from FSU, from Clemson, uh, just from all over. And it's a great time to just kind of eat a meal, talk with some of the other chapter directors. And they normally still uh, have a lot of the speakers that stay over from the conference. And they'll have tracks uh, such as a philosophy track, a science track, uh, me and my wife spoke at the, at the bioethics track on abortion uh, last year. It's, it's a great time. You have uh, the staff of Southern Evangelical Seminary and their uh, professors uh, like Dr. Bridges, Dr. Howe, uh, just wonderful, wonderful godly men and uh, incredibly, incredibly gifted men. Uh, got a lot of intellectual capital there. So uh, be sure to be looking for that. We'll give more details. We'll put it on our uh, Facebook page. If you've not liked our Facebook page, please come and uh, check us out, Theology Matters with the Palouse. Uh, I think we're going to be changing the name uh, uh, pro probably within the next uh, month or so, but uh, keep the format the same. Uh, in August, we plan on dedicating the month to creation science and just looking at uh, God and science. How does, how does science, how does faith come together? Uh, and in fact, our, our guest today, Doctor or Professor in Samples, uh, came on last year around this time and talked a little bit about science and faith. So we're going to be just discussing some of those topics. Uh, we know there's a variety of listeners, young Earth, old Earth. So we hope to have kind of a mix of both and just uh, do do a lot of the things that we agree on because we probably agree on a whole lot, probably ninety percent or better. And so it'd be good to bring kind of the top thinkers of both those positions on and just uh, do some shows on that. Uh, and then finally, in October, uh, we're going to be doing our Reformation Month. Uh, this will be something we've been doing about three years in a row, where we look at the importance of the Protestant Reformation, uh, why the Reformation needed to happen, why we probably need another Reformation today. And uh, we've been blessed to be able to bring on some really uh, smart Catholic uh, theologians and philosophers and uh, have them do some debates with some uh, Protestant philosophers and theologians. And it's, it's been a, a, a good time. Sometimes you get these debates and there's a lot of heat, but not necessarily a lot of light. Uh, I think these debates, I, I really think they've done a lot to encourage dialogue, break down misunderstandings. And uh, though we have a lot in common, and we certainly have a lot in common with our Roman Catholic friends, uh, there are some big differences. 
and they would say the same thing, and we would say those differences do matter. So join us in October as we uh, start the Reformation series, and we'll be, we'll be giving you more information on that. So today we are going to be having uh, Professor Ken Samples on the show, and uh, folks, I just cannot recommend uh, his books, his podcasts uh, enough. I mean, he's just, uh, he's, I think we're two peas in a pod. <laughs> Uh, Ken Samples is with Reasons to Believe, which is a, a great ministry. We'll have him tell us a little more about. Uh, Professor Samples focuses on demonstrating the unique compatibility of Christianity's great doctrinal truths with reason and logic. He's the author of several books, including uh, The Christian Endgame, Seven Truths That Changed the World, A World of Difference, and Without a Doubt. And he may have a couple more in there that uh, I don't know. He leads uh, RTB's Straight Thinking Podcast. I think they're not doing that anymore, but you can still subscribe to that, and uh, I listen to it all the time. He writes uh, Reflections, which is a weekly blog dedicated to exploring the Christian worldview. He does several series on Christian thinkers, and we often post them on our Ratio Christi uh, pages. So if there's any chapter directors out there, you've got to get his stuff. Uh, Professor Samples has spoken at universities and churches around the world on such topics as religion and worldview, the identity of Jesus and Christian apologetics. Uh, He makes fresh, frequent guest appearances on radio programs uh, like uh, Franks and, I don't know, I'm not even going to attempt to say that, Stand to Reason. Uh, He lectures as an adjunct professor at Biola and uh, teaches adult classes at Christ Reformed Church in Southern California. So, Professor Samples, are you there? I'm here, Devin. It's good to be with you. How are you? I am doing good. Doing good today. Just Great. Uh, trying to stay stay cool in this uh, Carolina heat. It has been pretty rough the last few days. I understand. It's it's pretty warm out here in Southern Cal as well. Yes. Yeah, not uh, not fun. We had our power go out a couple times because we've. Uh, oh boy! Seems like when you get these hot days, the storms just come and they are ferocious. I don't know if it's yeah the heat or whatever causes that, but uh, it's no fun not having power. But we made yeah. it through. <laughs> so, Professor Samples, uh, did did I leave anything out there? Anything that you wanted to to boy, add to you, that? You made me sound like I'm a busy man with all that stuff there. Uh, <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, it's uh, it's a pleasure to to be with you. I know that you and I met at a Southern Evangelical Seminary conference, and uh, that's right. It was wonderful to get to know you, and you've been very kind to have me on your show a couple times. And I know you and your wife oh. have a great ministry here, so I I want to encourage people to to listen to it, and I. I put our interview notice on my Twitter and Facebook site, so hopefully some people will follow up on it. Yeah, wonderful. I, I really appreciate that. And, and we'll be taking calls as well uh, at 760-542-3907 if you guys have some questions for Professor Samples. I'm sure he would uh, love to talk with you. So, so you, real quick, so you're at Christ Reformed Church. Um, the guy that wrote the book um, – Case, what is it? The case for all millennialism. I don't remember yeah. the name of that book. It convinced me. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't he go to that church? Yes. Well, I I know I'm no longer a member there, 
about a year ago I began attending another church. But, yes, uh, uh, Pastor Kim Riddlebogger, uh okay. has a book on all millennialism that's been very popular. And then you, you have a book. Is it that uh, – do you hold that position as well, or is that a different uh, – is that book well, a little different? My book on uh, entitled Christian Endgame is really kind of a primer on eschatology, kind of almost like a crash course on the topic. I I don't uh, take and defend any position. I try to talk about uh, the four major positions on the millennium. I talk about what I think is kind of unique. I call it uh, mere Christian eschatology. I in that part of the book, I talk about what all of the conservative Christian end times position affirm. And I, I try to encourage people to stay away from things like date setting and things that you know make Christianity look uh, less than true. And uh, I also try to talk a little bit about how should eschatology affect the way we live here as we await the blessed hope. So my book is really kind of a, a a popular introduction to Christian thinking. And I look at the millennial views and I give you what I think is the best, the strongest point and what may be the, 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 uh, the weakness of them. And so I'm trying to encourage people to think carefully about the end times because unfortunately it's a controversial topic and sometimes it has a lot of heat and other times, you know, uh, people have made big mistakes in predicting dates and, yeah. you know, the day comes, but the Lord doesn't. And so we need to be we need to be thoughtful in the way we talk about the end of the world. Yeah, I, well, I think that, that sounds like another show there that would be, that'd be good to do. That'd be fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're right, though. It's just like eschatology, uh, the age of the earth and um uh, Calvinism and Arminianism. That's boy, those are the wow. those are like landmines stepping into that's those, right? right? <laughs> that's it. All right. Well, good deal. So, uh, I, I got this book probably a couple of years ago, and uh, man, uh, the the book we're going to be discussing today, folks, is called uh, "Without a Doubt: Answering uh, Twenty of the Toughest Questions uh, of the of the Christian Faith." And, uh, you know, as a chapter director, I am constantly giving out the book, uh, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. But I really think this book is, man, it's right up there with that book. I mean, it's, this is such a great book. Some of the things uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about uh, is including the creeds. Why do we need the creeds? Uh, just some, some great things that are not in a lot of apologetic books, but I think they're they're important. Um, I like how you do not divorce uh, theology necessarily from apologetics. Sometimes I see apologists do that, and I, I appreciate how you you don't do that, and uh, I think that's important. Thank you. I that's a very important thing for me. I I believe that apologists need to be sophisticated theologically, and of course. If we're defending the faith, we ought to talk about the faith that we're defending. And so all of my books uh, in the area of apologetics, I really do try to to blend apologetics with, with a description and invitation to thinking about, you know, historic Christianity. So that's something I do intentionally. 
Now I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a question here, and it's probably another landmine we were trying to stay away from, uh, but I think it's important just to kind of know before we dig in. Um, as far as apologetic methodology, right? You and me are yeah. in the Reformed camp, and I am one that I love classical apologetics. I think Dr. Geisler right. and Sproul, particularly Dr. Geisler, has had probably the most impact on me. Uh, in this book, as you're dealing with, with these objections, I'm just uh, wondering what is your take on the uh, apologetic methodology? Do you take one over another? Do you think it's kind of a blended mixture or – uh, kind of, what's your approach in the book? Yes, very good question. Uh, I'll tell you a brief story, Devin. Uh, when I first started uh, studying apologetics and engaging in apologetics, I was influenced by Walter Martin and John Warwick Montgomery, and they held a more evidentialist point of view. I then came across and met Dr. Norman Geisler and uh, began reading and and met um, people like uh, William Lane Craig, and and so I thought, wow, this is uh, this is an interesting point of view. Uh, then I actually got to meet um, someone like an Alvin Plantica and the new Reformed epistemology, and of course, being a Reformed Christian myself, I was familiar with the presuppositional uh, perspective coming from people like. Uh, Cornelius Van Til and uh, Greg Bonson, John Frame. Uh, and I, I have to say I appreciate all of them. I know that uh, sometimes they conflict with each other. But, Devin, I would say I'm probably now and, and probably have been for quite some time, I, certainly since I wrote this book, without a doubt, back in 2004, I think I'm a cumulative case type of person. And I, what I thought was really interesting in the book, uh, Five Views of Apologetics, where all of those views are represented by uh, individuals today, I thought at the end of the book there was a lot of common ground. And so I like uh, evidential arguments of people like Habermas and uh, uh, some of my old uh, teachers like John Warwick Montgomery, but Norm Geisler has had a big influence on me and introduced me to Thomas Aquinas. I'm a very Augustinian person, and uh, I think the new Reformed epistemology has important value. So I see them as uh, methods. I see them uh, a lot of times being compatible with each other at other times, uh, maybe making distinctive points. But I would say overall, um, I think, for me, the most helpful and I think uh, effective way of defending the faith is uh, using abductive reasoning, and that would be reflected, I think, best in what is called a cumulative case approach. That's great. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you there. I love the love the classical method. When uh, when I read Ronald Nash's. Um, I think it's what is it? Reasons has it for faith has its reasons. This kind of little philosophy yes. of religion there. You, you know the book I'm talking about? Oh yeah, um, a terrific book. Yeah, it really Ron, Ron Nash was me, a was a great thinker. Yeah, yeah, I, that book really kind of opened me up to uh, I guess what we would call uh, defensive apologetics or negative apologetics, and has a great little section there on the presumption of atheism. And so it really oh, yeah. made me see, you know, it's good to, to um, 
the presuppositional approach can really have its strengths in just, you know, demolishing other worldviews. Uh, and then yeah. something like the classical method is good to get in there for the positive uh, case, you know. That's right. So. I think, you know, I think that they are very valuable tools that you want to have in your apologetic tool case uh, or tool chest. And, you know, again, there are times where Christians uh, can disagree about particular areas, but I've learned a lot from uh all the people that are represented in these views. And uh, that's really why I wrote without a doubt the way I did. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, part one uh, we have is titled Thinking Through uh, Questions About Faith in God. So maybe we could look at uh, the first one. How can anyone know that God exists? You know, I was brought up in a in a Pentecostal home and, uh, my dad was actually a pastor with the Assemblies of God, and um, I was just always taught, uh, not just from him but others as well, that, uh, you know, to believing in God is just something you, you just have to have faith. You don't have necessarily good arguments or reasons. It's just, um, you know, if you could prove it, then that would take away from faith. So when people say, Professor Samples, how can anyone know that God exists? What do you say to that? Yeah, I think that this is uh, – I, I think what you shared there is is uh, very important. Uh, Devin, I think of something St. Augustine said. He said that reason doesn't cause faith, but reason everywhere supports faith. Uh, I believe oh. that, that faith is, is the gift of God's grace. It's the Holy Spirit that that uses the gospel to – come into our heart and, and to allow us to, uh, to understand the gospel. But it, it's critically important when people raise questions, uh, you know, are there good reasons to believe in God? And we live in an increasing, I think, secular culture. And um, while many people have been raised in Christian homes, if you go to the university, somebody will simply ask you, well, you know, why do you believe in God or, or why do you believe in the Christian God? I think a powerful way of approaching that question is is to say that uh, affirming the existence of the God of the Bible, the God of historic uh, Christianity, uh, provides the best explanation for so many of the critical and meaningful realities uh, of life. And here I mean things like the fact that the universe is, is in existence. Where did it come from? Uh, it, it seems to be contingent. What what kind of cause brought it into existence? Um, and we could talk about the beginning of the universe. Uh, scientific cosmology indicates that the universe did have a beginning. And so many other things that we can add to that. The fine-tuning in the universe needs an adequate explanation. But also human beings uh, are deep, uh, sense of, of objective morality, uh, our yearning for life after death and, and finding purpose and meaning in life. And then, of course, the person of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. I think the best explanation for life and for the cosmos and for so many of these things, uh, the laws of logic, um, objective morality, the laws of physics, I think the best way of explaining all of these things 
is that they find uh, their source, they find their ground, they find their cause uh, in the God of the Judeo-Christian scriptures. And so that's how I approach it. Um, I think that what's powerful about that is it's not to say that some of the other worldviews don't have some explanatory power, but Christianity's explanatory power and especially scope is so wide and broad. I mean, I think of I think of something Pascal said that he thought he thought Christianity was true because it had an adequate explanation of human beings that humans are great and wretched, and for Christians the greatness comes in the image of God, the Imago Dei. The wretchedness is in the fall. So I like to approach that topic and say, uh, compared to naturalism or compared to uh, Islamic theism or Hinduism, that Christianity's worldview has incredible explanatory power and scope. Wow, very good. Um, and you touched on it a little bit. Did you want to uh, kind of explain maybe abductive reasoning and how you, yeah, how you use that? Yeah, that's, a, that's very important. A lot of people are familiar with deductive and inductive forms of reasoning. There is a third form of reasoning, and let me characterize it by comparing it with deduction. Central to deductive reasoning is if you present a deductive argument and your, your premises are, uh, are, are sound, uh, you will have a certain conclusion. If you, if you argue in a deductive reasonable way, you can arrive at certainty. The, the problem with deduction, however, is uh, it has limited application. I mean, when is the last time you made an argument based upon geometry? So if you're going to use deductive arguments, you have to make sure the premises, that, that is the support uh, for the conclusion, is, is uh, in fact sound. Inductive reasoning is probably the reasoning we're more familiar with. And that is uh, a probabilistic type of argument. Uh, that's, that's the characteristic of induction. Abduction, some people say it is a, a form of induction. Others say it's a third distinct form of reasoning. And that's where you attempt to appeal to the best explanation. Uh, in logic, we talk about an inference to the best explanation. So it, it certainly doesn't provide certainty. It is, it is uh, in that way, uh, in, in union with uh, induction. Uh, but it doesn't attempt to predict the way many scientific-oriented arguments do. And so I think it's a very powerful form of reasoning. And I think it fits so well with what we want to say about Christianity, and that is that uh, Christianity has very robust explanatory power and scope. Amen. I like that. I absolutely love that. How, how and, I, and you did touch on it a little bit, but how would we say God has revealed himself? What, what, what ways has yeah, he revealed himself? That's a critical question because I, again, to go back to our earlier point of seeing apologetics and theology or apologetics in the Bible being connected, um, Historic Christianity talks about the, the two books. Now, these are not two books like you would have in Mormonism, and it's, uh, it's not the Quran put on top of the Bible. Rather, there is uh, the book of nature. God has revealed himself in the, the natural world and 
uh, in creation, in human conscience. Uh, sometimes we refer to that to general revelation that goes out to all people. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that, that uh, God's existence is, is evident in the created order uh, and in our own conscience. But then there is the, the revelation that comes first in the person of Jesus Christ, in his life and death, his ministry, his crucifixion and resurrection. And that revelation has been summarized and explained uh, in what we would call the sacred scriptures. And so there is the book of nature and the book of scripture. The book of nature is not a literal book. It's a figurative book. But the Bible is, of course, a literal book. And so God has revealed himself in very powerful ways. And finally and decisively in the person of Christ, who is the incarnate Son of God. And uh, we believe that uh, the Holy Spirit inspired the writing of the apostles. So we have uh, an inerrant uh, and authoritative text in the Bible. Wonderful. I love that. That's that's good stuff. And um, you know, and I'll I do a lot of the the God and science talks around, and we're talking about general revelation and how it's it's general in uh, scope, I guess, and information general in that everybody uh, can see it. You know, if you have a hundred people that have a uh, hundred different languages, you can walk out to the night sky, and you know, Psalm nineteen one, the heavens declare the glory of God, and there's no speech or language where the voice isn't heard. Uh, and then the other thing is, though, is that it's general in information, right? Um, I think we can get to monotheism just from general revelation, uh, but we can't get to the doctrine of the Trinity, for example. Would you agree with that? I do. I think that uh, I think it's important to recognize that general revelation goes out to all people at all times, everywhere. Uh, again, citing the very passages you do, the the heavens are and the Hebrew is actually the heavens keep on declaring the glory of God. So this is an ever-present direction of God's glory and his reality. But uh, scripture is absolutely necessary. The revelation in Jesus Christ, uh, that's where we get very specific information about uh, the nature of God and uh, about the person of Christ. And uh, so those two forms of revelation, I think, are are critical, and I think that uh, when I went to the university and began studying logic and philosophy and history, it was important for me to realize that God is the author of the book of nature and the book of scripture, and that if I interpret them properly, if they're understood properly, they're going to going to cohere. But that was really kind of a, a liberating moment, Devin. It, it allowed me to recognize that uh, God's hand is seen in history. It is it is seen in, in the sciences, and that, that fingerprint is consistent with the very fingerprint we find in Christ and in Scripture. Amen. Amen to that. Do you mind if I uh, play a quick uh, clip of uh, Richard Dawkins here? He's, he's speaking kind of about Christians and uh, just the lack of uh, the problems between faith and reason, etc., uh, just before we leave the science stuff and kind of go to some of the other parts, uh, I'm going to sure. play this little quick two-minute clip and would just love uh, your thoughts, maybe how you would respond if you were able to, to talk with him. 
Of all the issues human society faces today, religion remains one of the most divisive and destructive. I hope you find this film on it interesting. There are lots of people who have been brought up in some religion or other, are unhappy in it, don't believe it, or are worried about the evils that are done in its name. There are people who feel vague yearnings to leave their parents' religion and wish they could, but just don't realize that leaving is an option. I've written a book called The God Delusion, aimed at those people. The book inspired a short documentary series for Channel 4 on the dangers of religion called Root of All Evil. Now we've made a single film called The God Delusion from that series. The film explores a world increasingly polarized by religion, with the atrocities of 9-11 and 7-7 still raw memories. In America's Midwest and in Israel, it became apparent how prone otherwise sane people are to extremism once they indulge in faith, belief without evidence, when they give up reason. This film takes a hard look at the very concept of faith, how it behaves like a kind of brain virus infecting generations of young minds, how it perpetuates outdated and dubious moral values. Religion deserves to be scrutinized far more critically than it normally is. I feel passionately about this. If the film does just one thing, I hope it encourages people to start questioning why the strange, distorted mindset of religious faith should automatically demand, and usually receive, our society's respect. So, what are, what are your thoughts on that, Professor Samples? He doesn't mince words. Yes, yes very interesting. Uh, I remember several years ago reading Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, I would say a couple things to what I just heard from him. He, of course, says that religion is divisive and destructive. But, of course, it depends on the kind of religion you're, you're talking about. I mean, historic Christianity in many ways, Devin, birthed Western civilization, of, of which uh, Dawkins is a, a privileged member. Uh, with Western civilization came education. I mean, the, the famous universities in Europe were started by Christians, in the medieval era, and that includes Cambridge and Oxford. Science was birthed within the context. I mean, Dawkins is a scientist, but if you examine the, uh, the emergence of the, the scientific uh, movement in the uh, 1700s, the Christian worldview is the one that uh, shaped it and influenced it. And we could talk about many advancements of medicine, civil rights, even democracy that come uh, because of Christianity's amazing influence. Uh, I, I guess I would also say a couple other things. Um, one, I was not terribly impressed with the God delusion. In fact, I would say if you want, uh, if you want better books on atheism, uh, I think you need to go to the old atheists. I think they were better than the new atheists. I'm, I'm thinking of J.L. Mackey's book, The Miracle of Theism, he was a very bright atheist, and I think his arguments are much more roped and challenge us more than uh, a person like Dawkins, who I think is in many ways a, a, a popularizer. And I guess uh, the last point I want to make here, Devin, is this, that I would agree that religion needs to be critiqued, and certainly 
radical Islam has uh, caused much problems in society. But I would simply add that I also think secular thinking needs to be critiqued. Uh, and we need to challenge and investigate all of these particular worldviews. But Dawkins, as a scientist, in many ways is the is the beneficiary of a Christian worldview that says there's a real world out there made by God, and that it pleases God for us to study it uh, and to to benefit from it. So um, I'm okay with Dawkins critiquing my religion. I just would like to return the favor and say um, I read The God Delusion and I I didn't find the arguments terribly persuasive and I think there are other atheist books that actually are better. Mm. That's a a great point. I I was thinking about this. I think it is with the older books, you know, the Michael Martins, uh, George Smith, uh, Anthony Flues, they're better because they, I think they were because they were philosophers, as compared to you know Lawrence Krauss, Richard Dawkins, Neil deGrasse Tyson. It just seems like um, because they're scientists and they're not really the issue. I think is more of a philosophical one: the existence of God, arguments for God, and etc. Than just kind of a strict scientism. And so it seems that maybe those guys were more uh, able to give the arguments and harder to contend with because it just kind of bypasses the whole scientism thing. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? I, I think you're right. I think that uh, some of the older atheists are more robust in their arguments because they took the time to understand Christianity. They took the yeah. time to engage Christian philosophical ideas, and so... Uh, the J.L. Mackeys and and, uh, many others, they were very familiar with the cosmological, teleological, moral arguments. I I certainly respect Dawkins' scientific ability and those of, uh, you know, others, but I, I, I think they often fail to recognize that science has limits and, you know, you, you hear Stephen Hawking, Richard Dawkins, and they say, well, philosophy is dead. But then you hear them make real fundamental errors in their philosophical thinking. And so, yeah. yes, I, I, think that, uh, I think we ought to critique all of the worldviews. And I think uh, thoughtful Christians should pick up Dawkins' book, read it, and think through, and, and take – the responses that have uh, been coming from many Christians uh, to people like uh, the new atheists. Yeah. I, I just, I think he goes after a lot of low hanging fruit and Very good. You know, when you look, if you dismiss Thomas Aquinas in a page and a half, you're just not, wow. you're not engaging. You're not engaging with, I think it was either a page and a half or two pages that he spent right. uh, yeah. dealing with, with, with Thomas Aquinas. You know, and I think the old atheists, even if they don't agree with theism, they don't come to the conclusions, they would never say someone like Thomas Aquinas was an idiot or, you know, the same as believing yeah. in Santa. I, I just think they're so much more intellectually honest. Well, you, you think yeah. – I think of somebody like a Thomas Nagel at New York University. I mean, he knows mm-hmm. Al Plantica. He knows Richard Swinburne. He, he knows there are intellectual – arguments that buttress 
uh, a Christian religious point of view. And uh, I think you're right. Um, I think that uh, uh, there there's plenty of things you can take shots at because of religion. And, and again, because of the terrorism, because of the, the radical Islamic perspectives, it's easy to uh, take shots at that. But he seldom is able to talk about the remarkable contributions to Western civilization that Christianity has brought. Yeah, absolutely. And he still is borrowing from a theistic worldview in order to condemn things that aren't what he doesn't see as good or bad or, you know, we could be better. He's got some standard that he's using that's uh, unchangeable, immutable standard. He's, he's borrowing from a theistic worldview to even launch into, you know, the God of the Old Testament, and then he, you know, launches into all these, you know, ridiculous names. But, yeah, if God doesn't exist, you know, you're, you're sitting in God's lap to slap his face. You're having to borrow from a theistic worldview to even get your arguments off the ground. You can't even account for that's, arguments in your worldview. That's exactly right. There is, uh, he has a, a lot of uh, theistic and particularly Christian theistic capital uh, at his access, and I, again, though I think there is a there is a, a lack of appreciation of the the depth of the philosophical and theological contributions, and um, mm-hmm. at least the old atheists knew that you had to tackle Thomas Aquinas, uh, you yeah. had to deal with some of the really excellent Christian thinkers through the centuries, and so um, Dawkins uh, tends to be a person who gets lots of attention, but I don't see him as uh, uh, one of the more formidable uh, defenders of of the naturalist worldview. Right. Yep, absolutely. Uh, So you have another section on here, uh, and I mentioned it a little earlier. uh, Aren't the creeds a thing of the past? And I just, I love this because it just grieves my heart, I guess, as a Protestant, as an evangelical, uh, just to see that the creeds, uh, at least in a lot of my circles, especially growing up, that, you know, I never heard of them. I never heard of them until I went to seminary. I, I never even knew what they were. And even today, when I talk to a lot of Protestants, very suspicious. You know, it's this, um, not sola scriptura, but solo scriptura. And yeah. uh, it's just such an easy counter for our Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox friends. And it's such a distortion of the reformers. Um, talk a little bit about the creeds. Why, why do we need them? Um, you know, they're not, they're not part of the Bible, and we just believe the Bible. So what do we need the creeds for? Yeah, very, very important. What I like to say, Devin, is I say, you know, there are actually creeds in Scripture. You look at the Shema in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's a Jewish creed. In the New Testament, the most primitive, the earliest creed, Christian creed, was Jesus is Lord. And there are other statements uh, in the New Testament that reflect creedal-like statements. And so in many ways, uh, and and an excellent example is 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about uh, Christ uh, being crucified and buried and rising and appearing. And this this was the the prolegomenon. This was the first kind of preached message. And so 
the Bible is not absence of, of creeds. And of course, I think it's, I think a very important ally to Christian apologetics is to have a knowledge of, of Christian uh, history, to, to have an appreciation for what we call historical theology. You know, these creeds, such as the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the Creed of Chalcedon, these creeds were written by some of the brightest, some of the most devout uh, Christians throughout Christian history, and uh, they never intended for the creeds to replace Scripture. Uh, the Nicene Creed is seen as something that draws out biblical truth, and so uh, we, I think we would make a tactical mistake to ignore uh, these wonderful creedal statements. Now, it doesn't mean that uh, the creeds uh, have authority above Scripture. In fact, the creeds are always derivative in their authority. And uh, Protestants, uh, uh, certainly Luther and Calvin, recognized that these creedal statements were, were critical, that this was what we might call historic Christianity, or what C.S. Lewis would call mere Christianity. And so I see creeds as, as being very careful summaries of, of essential Christian truth. And uh, certainly the creeds in many ways bring the branches of Christendom together. I mean, I grew up as a Roman Catholic when I was in college. Uh, I met Walter Martin, began studying scripture very seriously, and I decided that I was a Protestant. Uh, but what I recognize, Devin, is in my, the Reformed Church that I attend, we recite the same creed that the Catholics did when I was a young boy. And so creeds don't say everything. Uh, they don't touch on issues like justification by faith. They don't touch on the issue of is the church more authoritative than Scripture. But I'll tell you, Devin, I think these creeds are, they are so valuable in giving us guidance and direction, and also helping us to anchor our faith in our time to the faith back into the ancient world. And so I'm very appreciative of the Church Fathers. I think, um, I think apologists uh, first need to know something about theology, but apologists also need to know something about church history and, and historical theology, because uh, you know, so often the answers that we give to the Bart Airmans of the world or how come the Gospels are anonymous is we are understanding how the Church Fathers uh, understood these things. And um, certainly I don't think tradition is above Scripture. I believe Scripture is the supreme authority, but Church tradition is very valuable, just like all of Church history and particularly the creeds, are very valuable documents. Yeah, you know, we'll be, uh, we're going to be meeting with some Jehovah's Witnesses for the next, uh, I think, seven weeks, starting Friday. Wow. And this idea of uh, the creeds not being relevant, they're incredibly, incredibly relevant. Uh, yeah. Because they really deal with most of the heresies, and church history really deals with most of the heresies, that were coming up, you're probably not going to find a whole lot of new ones. It seems to be the same attacks on the Trinity, the same attacks um, on the deity of Christ. So something like the Athanasian Creed is a great 
uh, of great help as you're maybe dealing with the Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or uh, etc. So I'm with you. It's just um, I just think it's so important that we get rooted and grounded as as Protestants. We don't want to be known as uh, I was going to say you know those that go back to the Reformation, but now it's more like Billy Graham. <laughs> Anything past him is uh, sometimes uh, you know. It's just important. Yeah. And one thing I've noticed, and, too, is, is – oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, Devin, when it comes to doing apologetics within Christendom, um, we are at a weakness to Catholic and Orthodox thinkers if we don't have a good knowledge of, of church history. And so I think right. Protestants and uh, unfortunately many, too many evangelical churches, you know, affirm no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible. Uh, but, but creeds are a rich resource, and there are creeds in Scripture that were used as summary statements of faith. So um, being an apologist, I think, really does demand some, some discipline and careful study and, and, and to try to work on the areas maybe you, you know less than maybe you should. So we're all... We're all growing, and we should be able to to learn from many sources. Yeah, you know, where I'm out in South Carolina, it was probably two or three weeks ago. I just pulled up churches, went looking at the different websites. I mean, you know, forget confessions and creeds. You can't even find statement of faith half the time. Right. Churches don't want to even do a statement of faith. What's your, That's right. And I know this is probably going to be somewhat along with the creeds, but um, also the confessions. Like for me, you know, I love the 1689 London Baptist. I'm sure you're kind of the Westminster um, uh, creeds and that. What what are your your view on the creeds? Because you get a little pushback. I'm not sorry. The confessions. Because I know yes. sometimes we'll get pushback on the on the confessions as well. Yes. What's what's interesting and 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 I it needs to be appreciated that that Luther and Calvin were at one time Roman Catholics and as they were responding to, to Catholicism and the, the excesses of Catholicism, the unbiblical ideas that they perceived in Catholicism, um, they developed confessional statements. So the, the Protestant confessions uh, in the Reformed tradition, you have the Westminster Confession, you have the Belgic Confession, uh, the, the Luther, Lutherans have the Book of Concord, uh, the Anglicans have the 39 articles. So all of the original Protestant uh, bodies developed confessional statements, and these are longer than creedal statements. They go into much more detail, and of course they defend uh, distinctive Protestant ideas about the authority of Scripture, about salvation being by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Uh, again, the, neither the creeds nor the confessions are seen as having authority above Scripture. Rather, the authority that the creeds and the confessions have, Devin, is because they derive their authority from Scripture. It, it's their, it is their, uh, their congruence with the Scripture that makes uh, those creeds and confessions so, so powerful and so meaningful uh, to us. Absolutely, and I love them. I just I think it, it gets us back to uh, to the early church. Uh, let me let me ask you this. I guess um, 
we talked a little bit about with uh, the Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. Um, how many creeds exactly uh, kind of in the early church are there? And as Protestants, um, how many would we be able to affirm with the Eastern Orthodox and, and uh, Roman Catholic Church? Terrific, terrific question. Obviously, um, creedal statements do the very thing that you're talking about. Um, you know, the uh, Nicene Creed, uh, a reaction to the to the heresy of Arianism, the view that that is very similar to Jehovah's Witnesses that that uh, the Son Jesus is like God, but not fully God. Uh, that God created Jesus and then through him created the world. Or um, other, other heresies, uh, modalism, um, uh, tritheism, the creeds played a critical role in, in uh, standing against uh, teachings that, that really went against the essence of historic Christianity. Certainly the creeds that are the most popular uh, the Apostles' Creed is just over a hundred words. It is uh, a very common creed. I think probably the the creed that may uh, have the most common ground within the branches of Christendom. So I'm speaking of Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, and Protestantism would probably be the Nicene Creed. Uh, but the Athanasian Creed and its its uh, affirmation of the Trinity is very important. And then the Creed of Chalcedon identifies Christ as the incarnate Son of God. Those are creeds that I think all of the branches of Christendom, where we may begin to divide is over some of the councils. Some of the later Catholic councils are not affirmed by Eastern Orthodoxy. They accept the first seven councils. Catholics accept more than that. Uh, And then, of course, uh, Protestants would... uh, uh, would take issue with with uh, the question of how the Orthodox and Catholics understand uh, tradition and scripture and the the, the critical issue of, of uh, how does grace and faith and human works uh, work in the context of salvation. So uh, certainly the creeds that I mention um, in my book, Without a Doubt, I think are are very valuable to all uh, Christians living today. Yeah, you know, as a as a reformed guy, I get a lot of pushback sometimes because I I really can appreciate a lot of the Catholic thinkers. You know, being a being a Geisler guy, I'm going to love Saint Thomas Aquinas and um, even a lot of your modern day guys. They're, they're they're brilliant. I mean, they're very very sharp, and sometimes if you you know, talk about Catholicism, the eyebrows raise, and it's uh, kind of immediately dismissed because of, of being Catholic. But I do also recognize there's real issues in in the doctrine with, uh, like you, uh, you brought up, justification, etc. How 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 severe are those differences? Would you say? Like I, I know that there's you know Christians that are uh, in the Catholic Church. You know, I, I understand that. Um, but I'm just curious your thoughts as far as um, is it a game changer as far as if you accept the kind of the official Roman Catholic uh, view of justification? Is it, a, is it yeah, like it's, a it's polar a, opposite? It's, 
it's a very important question, and and I, I I guess I would take make two points here, Devin. I would I would say first of all that conservative Catholics there are plenty of liberal Catholics and New Age right. Catholics and mystical Catholics, but Catholics who who actually believe uh, the the creeds and and the uh, statements of the councils. Uh, I've dialogued with with people like Brumley of Ignatius Press and. Uh, Father wow. Mitchell Pacwa, a Jesuit scholar, he and I have yeah. had dialogues and debates. I would say two wow. points. The first point is that conservative Catholics and conservative Protestants both believe uh, really every word of the Nicene Creed. That's a lot of common ground. I mean, yeah. even John Jefferson Davis says, uh, you know, they Catholic, conservative Catholics and conservative Protestants may have about 85% in common. Now, the differences, they are very critical. They are very profound. Uh, the, the question of uh, the authority of Scripture as compared to the, the teaching office of the church, the issue of justification by faith, uh, the Marian dogmas. Um, I wrote a, I co-authored a book years ago, a book entitled The Cult of the Virgin, where I looked at the titles that are given to Mary. And what troubles me is that those titles are parallel to Christological titles, and the modern modern Catholic Church with uh, Vatican II and its inclusivism. Th- these are these are very important issues. One one Christian thinker said that the Protestant Reformation was a tragic necessity. Now Catholics would say it's just tragic, and some of my evangelical friends who are not very friendly at all toward Catholicism, would just say it's a necessity. I would say it is a tragic necessity. It was tragic that Christendom was divided, but because of these very critical differences over the authority of Scripture, salvation by grace, and, and other doctrines, it was also a necessity. And uh, I'd like to talk with Roman Catholics. I I've also learned in the last number of years a lot about Eastern Orthodoxy, and um, I like to debate. I also like to talk about what we have in common, and uh, this may sound controversial maybe to some of your guests, but I've learned things from studying Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism, and I hope that my Catholic friends might learn from my Protestant faith as well. Yeah. Absolutely, I know I've learned. I've learned a ton. I think it was uh, Carl Truman. Um, I know you know who, who Carl Truman is. Yeah, saying, Westminster Seminary. You know, yeah, yeah. He was he was saying as far as like work on on uh, the Trinity and that um, with classical theism and that uh, Roman Catholic scholars have really been the ones on the ball. Uh, he says you yeah. know we're kind of mo- doing more of the work on soteriology, but um, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of uh, Catholic resources in my library. Would you say, I'm not sure if it was Luther or Calvin, when they say that the kind of the, the gospel itself hinges on justification by faith alone, would you agree with that, or would you say that they're kind of overstating their case? Well, I certainly would say that that no Christian can can deny that salvation is by grace alone. And um, where Protestants come to bear is to say that it is not only by grace alone, but it is through faith in Christ alone. 
And I, I think that uh, I think the Orthodox and the Roman Catholics teaching salvation by grace, but not through faith alone. And unfortunately, and here's where I would I would be a bit critical. I I have Catholic and Orthodox friends, and they'll say I I don't I can't say I'm saved. I hope to be saved. Uh, and that's where I would come and say I think that uh, the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, the New Testament indicates that we are saved by grace and it is through faith and that the works that we do are are really the fruit of of grace itself. And so I think the differences are are important and I think the doctrine of justification by faith is derived uh, from the Bible. But I think it's also very easy to uh, uh, commit problems. And Devin, I, I like to talk about what I call the golden rule of apologetics. Treat other people's beliefs and arguments the way you want yours treated. I don't, I don't want Catholics or Orthodox to misunderstand Protestant or Reformed views. And therefore, I try to endeavor to quote their best sources or quote their best people. Um, I want to be fair uh, to what other people believe, and and Devin, I really find that a lot of people are are open and are interested and are persuaded when you are fair and when you are careful and when you have an intellectual uh, code of ethics, if you will, you know. And and I think that uh, I'd like to leave people with two points when it comes to the Catholic Church. Uh, they believe every word of the Nicene Creed, which is which is a very large piece of historic Christianity. But I would also say that the differences are very significant, and we have to wrestle and work through those kinds of issues. Uh, Dr. Geisler and I have uh, uh, written on Catholicism, and we have uh, talked with Catholic thinkers and um, I, I think it is a very valuable thing. I think that, uh, and I think that Protestants can learn from Catholics and Orthodox. And again, I hope that maybe they can learn from us. Very good. Professor Samples, can you stay around for a little bit, or do you need to get sure. running? I'm, okay, I'm great. able to stay with you. Okay, great. We can, uh, if you're able, we'll go another hour. And uh, what we can do is, is uh, take a quick break and uh, let people they need to use the restroom and maybe let you get a drink and catch your breath. And I'll uh, take a, a three-minute break, and we will be uh, right back after this, so stay with us. God's Word can sustain a lifetime of study, and the new Reformation Study Bible is carefully crafted to enrich your study of Scripture. When you register your new study Bible online, you'll instantly gain access to hundreds of dollars of discipleship resources from Ligonier Ministries. You'll own several teaching series, including Dust to Glory, Dr. R.C. Sproul's 57-message survey of the entire Bible. You'll receive six months of devotional content with a subscription to Table Talk Magazine. You'll have convenient access to select eBooks on your digital devices. And you'll join others from around the world on Ligonier Connect. Your new Reformation Study Bible is a great foundation for growth. Register it today and unlock a lifetime of study. Here's a Renewing Your Mind Minute with Dr. R.C. Sproul. Spiritual rebirth is the work of God. 
When Paul speaks in Ephesians 2 about being quickened by the Holy Ghost while we're dead in sin and trespasses, he's talking about regeneration, which is a supernatural work. It is a work done from above by the immediate power of God, and it is something that only God can do. You cannot make yourself be reborn any more than Lazarus could have brought himself out of the tomb. Just as you did not do anything for your natural birth except be born, so your rebirth is a matter of the mercy and grace of God. For today's special offer, visit renewingyourmind.org. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. Apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. It's no secret that philosophy has been given a bad rap by some in Christian circles. Why do you think that's the case? Well, bad philosophy needs a bad rap. Uh, And a lot of Christians, that's all they know. Colossians 2.8 says, beware of philosophy. Actually, there's a definite article of the in Greek. It's talking about particular bad philosophy was kind of incipient Gnosticism that existed there. Christians have nothing to fear from a good philosophy. In fact, we need good philosophy to answer the bad philosophy, as C.S. Lewis said. So I think Christians need to get into philosophy because God commanded it, because uh, the world uh, demands it, and because the results confirm it. Uh, I can tell you any number of people who have been trained in philosophy and apologetics who have had great ministries and winning people to Christ who would not otherwise have been won to Christ. I have a whole file full of people who said, I was an agnostic, I was an atheist, I read your book, uh, I appreciated the reasoning that was in it, and I've come to know uh, Christ, and I want to thank you for uh, writing that book. So the uh, proof of the pudding is in the uh, eating. It has good results, uh, good philosophy, has good results. You can't know error without studying truth, but you can't answer error without studying philosophy because you wouldn't go to a doctor who didn't study sickness. If you went to a doctor who said, what's wrong with that? He said, I got a pain in my apostat near my zorch or wherever you get pains. And he said, uh, what would you like to know about health? He said, look, doctor, I'm, I'm dying. I got a pain. I don't want to know about health. I want to know, can you cure this sickness I've got? So you can know the truth, but if you don't know error, you don't know how to apply the truth to the error and when the people were in error. All right, folks, welcome back to Theology Matters, and we are here with Professor Samples, and uh, we're going through his book, Without a Doubt, and uh, just phenomenal, phenomenal stuff, and uh good thing about this uh, show is that it's podcasted, so you guys can listen to it, you can share it, and get the information out, and uh, really do suggest getting his book. Uh, so we just basically dealt with part uh, one. There's a few more things in there, but uh, maybe we can look at part two, a couple, uh, couple of the things in part two. Uh, one of the questions is, are the Gospels trustworthy accounts of Jesus' life? Why is this, um, why is this relevant? Why is it important for our, our apologetic professor samples? Yeah, well, if, 
uh, if Christianity is all about the person of Christ, it is uh, it is the Gospels and and the rest of the New Testament that that reveal him, that tell us about him. They came from the hands of the apostles. And, of course, we live at a time in which uh, people are very skeptical and very suspicious about uh, religion, as we we saw in the earlier hour, people like Richard Dawkins. So I think uh, New Testament studies, uh, looking at uh, the reliability of the Gospels, uh, when were they written, uh, what is their relationship uh, to the oral preaching period and and uh, the written epistle period? And so, um, again, another area in which apologetics is very critical is having a good understanding of the reliability and uh, the uh, textual reliability and historical reliability of the the Gospels. And so in my book, I talk a bit about manuscripts and manuscript authority. Uh, I talk about challenges that that people have. And so it's very, very important to be able uh, to to share with people that they can have confidence that what is written in the gospel conveys a historical and trustworthy message. Yeah, it's... it's, um because the, the Gospels are so reliable and, and uh, historically accurate, it also, I think, kind of puts the uh, skeptics on the, on the heels because um, if you're going to dismiss the Gospels and it, or the, the New Testament, and I think a lot of times what it is is just this kind of presupposition against miracles, therefore, uh, because the New Testament has miracles, you can't trust it, uh, I guess it would really bring up a lot of questions about um, other historical works as far as method and how we, uh, you know, what's the criteria for saying something is reliable or, or not reliable. That's exactly right. I, I was uh, listening to a a YouTube de- debate between a, a, an atheist, Robert Price, and uh, William Lane Craig. And what struck me, there are many things that I found interesting about the debate, but uh, Price's skepticism about not being able to know anything about Jesus. Um, I wonder uh, if he wouldn't apply that to then not knowing anything about Plato or Aristotle. And if you can't know about classical Greece, then the academy is completely up for grabs. And so we live at a time, and, and personally, Devin, I think that uh, – I think it is a tactic on the part of of some skeptics, some atheists, to uh, become so skeptical of of anything in history that they're not forced to take into account the New Testament. But the problem with that is um, if Jesus is gone, then you can know little about any other figure in ancient history. And uh, history is on the side of historic Christianity. So it's it's important to uh, to understand the text, how many manuscripts we have, when they were written, and on what basis we conclude that that these are reliable uh, testimonies from people who who knew Jesus and and uh, saw him risen from the dead. Yeah, these these things absolutely matter. Got to have some some copies and, and accuracy there. You have another section uh, maybe you could talk about 
Is Jesus a man, myth, madman, menace, mystic, Martian, or the Messiah? A little more than uh, Lewis had dealt with, wasn't it? (laughs) Yeah, I I hope everybody's impressed with all those M words. It took me a long time. Uh, uh, Well, C.S. Lewis is is a person who uh, I have a lot of admiration for. His book, uh, Mere Christianity, was the first Christian book I ever read. And uh, he was really the first person I heard argue for uh, Christianity being reasonable and and, uh, Christianity being true. And I was exposed to the Lord Liar lunatic argument. And what I do in that chapter is I just simply kind of broaden the, the possible explanations because, again, I like that abductive approach, uh, an inference to the best explanation. And um, so I raised the question, well, Lord Liar or Lunatic, are there any other alternatives that someone might consider, um, you know, maybe a, a myth? And certainly we live at a time when uh, uh, UFO religions are, are very powerful. So, you know, could could Jesus be a Martian? But the interesting thing is, Devin, that I think whatever alternatives that you place there, uh, all of them other than Jesus being the Messiah really fail, and they, they fail miserably. I mean, to think that Jesus was a menace or to think that he was a madman, uh, these explanations uh, are so uh, weak and foreign and, and contradictory. So I like to allow a person to say, well, uh, here are some of the options. Here are some of the alternatives that people have have gravitated toward. Um, Which one would you like to pick? And uh, let's do a little comparing and contrasting. And so uh, I simply took Lewis's, uh, his uh, Lord Liar Lunatic and and simply maybe added a few that they may be extreme positions, but seemingly some people tend to, to hold one or the other. Right. So it's yeah, I love I love the I love the dilemma. I mean it's uh it's brilliant. Absolutely absolutely brilliant. Uh folks, let me give you the number for those who are wanting to, to call and uh maybe ask Professor Samples a question. You can call in at seven six zero five four two three nine oh seven. That's seven six zero five four two three nine oh seven. Uh, so, you know, I said earlier I'm going to be uh, meeting with some Jehovah's Witnesses over the next few weeks, and this issue of uh, the deity of Jesus always comes up. And, uh, sure. you know, some of the standard standard verses they go to. And so this section on how can Jesus Christ be both God and man, how would you reply? Yeah, now I think we're, you know, that it's that center part of the book, Devin, where we really get down to the the particulars of the historic Christianity. And so uh, historic Christianity says that Jesus is the divine Messiah. He is the second person of the Trinity who has taken on human flesh. And to defend Jesus as, uh, as the Greek, the theanthropos, theos is God, anthropos is man. So Jesus is the theanthropos, or or the God-man, when we look to Scripture, we see uh, an enormous amount of, of passages that support both his divinity and his humanity. And, of course, uh, Christianity has always had critics. 
just as uh, Jehovah's Witnesses have their kind of historical backdrop in Arianism, uh, there are other uh, uh, new religious movements in the old days, we called them uh, cultic groups, who, who challenge historic Christianity. And one of the major areas that, uh, that all Arian-like groups like to do is to challenge the deity of Christ. And so what I do in this chapter is uh, I try to look very carefully uh, at uh, all of the major passages that support Christ's deity and humanity, and then try to respond to some of the passages that at first blush, at first read, might seem like they conflict with his deity. And uh, I've been talking with Jehovah's Witnesses, boy, for uh, 35 years. And uh, I, in fact, I'll tell you, one of the things that motivated me to study apologetics is I was, I was at a park playing basketball uh, when I was in my early 20s. And I met a Jehovah's Witness, and uh, boy, he was difficult to deal with. I, I knew I believed in the Trinity, and I knew I believed in hell and Christ's deity, but uh, I had not studied adequately, and this guy really kind of twisted me like a, a pretzel. And I remember driving wow. home. I, I remember saying to the Lord, Lord, I'm never going to let that happen again. I'm going, to, I'm going to study. I'm going to have passages in my memory that I can give. And uh, that was the first encounter I had with a witness. And I've talked with uh, dozens, if not hundreds of them, and uh, sh shared my faith. And so when we get down to who is Jesus, because Jesus can do what he did on the cross because he, he was who he was in terms of his being. So because Jesus is the divine human, he can reconcile God and humanity. And so I see this chapter as a really critical chapter in, in understanding Christianity. And um, it's, it, it's so very important to be able to to know where the passages are and and to learn how to respond to the passages that uh, uh, heretical sects or non-Christian uh, religious movements uh, try to use to defend their unorthodox view. So next time we see a, a Jehovah's Witness, we should thank him for uh, <laughs> turning, turning Ken into uh, one of our greatest allies and... Uh, <laughs> Defenders of the faith. Uh, that's, that's good. It's, it's true. They they just he really uh, he really checkmated me. And after that, I thought that I'm not going to let that happen again. And uh, you know, God God uses difficulties and disappointments and challenges sometimes to help us grow. Yeah, I was I was listening to a uh, uh, talk by uh, Dr. James White on the Jehovah's Witnesses, and he was. He was saying, you know, that the the uh, the Jehovah's Witness, I think it's, I, I can't remember the exact term he used, but but the group that studies like 30 hours plus a week, he said those guys are a match for any seminary grad, let alone your average, uh, you know, house mom yeah. or house dad opening up the door on a Saturday morning. Right. That's a that that's a so. that is a terrific point and. You know, it's it's so important that our churches are able to teach doctrine, that we're able to make people feel comfortable 
using the Bible, reading and drawing uh, drawing the, the meaning of the text out. And so uh, I guess if I have my greatest concern sometimes, Devin, for the evangelical church is I'm concerned that we don't uh, we don't teach and catechize and and help Christians to to not only recognize the truth but also to see the uh, the uh, the error that is so prevalent uh, in our world. You, you know, I guess one of the things that frustrates me so much is it seems to me that when Christians are exposed to apologetics in the church, they love it. They love it, and they want more of it. But trying to convince the leadership and trying to convince the pastors that this is needed and we should be doing this with the young people, it's like a lot of it is just the idea of, well, it's not not application, it's not practical, it's not going to help their relationships or whatever. But the people that are exposed to it that I've seen, they normally love it, and they they want more of it. But it's yeah. just you don't really get it from the leadership in a lot of cases. I'm with you. I I sometimes think the gatekeepers uh, in our churches are the are the ones who uh, you know so we sometimes have our biggest challenges with in terms of uh, communicating how important it is to not only uh, present the faith but be able to effectively defend it. So yeah, I'm right with you. Maybe on a practical level, if there's if there's pastors or those in leadership listening, how do we how do we do this? So if if you were a pastor, uh, Professor Samples, or we'll call you Pastor Samples, how would you gear your church maybe for a summer or something? Um, if if they were going to get involved with the Jehovah's Witnesses, maybe what are some things as a church that they could do to help the congregation? And if you just if you had some. Uh, congregants uh, coming to you and saying on a personal level, what are some things I can do to, to study and get ready and uh, to be able to do this kind of interaction? What would you do? Yeah, I really think, Devin, that um, it's it's very important to have uh, teaching in churches, uh, in the Sunday schools, and, and even in the services where uh, historic Christian doctrine is is taught and uh, not only that but that people become conversant with the fact that there are people who challenge these things it's not just that we believe the trinity is a doctrine that can be derived from the bible but it's also important to realize that there are plenty of people that will knock on your door that will deny the trinity deny the deity of christ and so I, i think we need to teach within a context of of uh an apologetic challenge i think i think it's important to to help people to build their confidence to build their knowledge and um i think it's uh very very important um for evangelism i mean it's it's difficult to get christian people to talk about their faith when they don't feel confident and you know um there are some jehovah's witnesses that are difficult to deal with but most of them that come to your door are uh, are students of the Bible, and if you're a serious student of the Bible and you've studied Christian history and you know something about systematic theology, you're in a very good position to say, "Hey, let's." I mean, when when Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door, my my method is say, 
hey, let's 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 talk for 90 minutes. I'll I'll let you talk for 30 minutes and I'll listen. And then you let me talk for 30 minutes and you listen and then the last 30 minutes we'll ask each other questions. And mm. I do that with Mormons, I do that with Jehovah's Witnesses and you know, I want to encourage people uh, in our churches, and I, I want to encourage. Uh, I also want to encourage the church and the pastors to recognize that they may need some help. They may need to to call up Theology Matters and have Devin come down there and and talk about Christian apologetics. I I think pastors sometimes feel like they have to be all things to to all men. But it's a wonderful right. thing to have a summer series on, on Christian apologetics, maybe, maybe cult studies or maybe science and faith issues or, or uh, maybe looking at Christian history. I think uh, Yaroslav Pelikan, he was a, a great historian of Christianity at Yale. He, says, he said the church is always more than a school, but the church can never be less than a school. Devin, I'm oh, concerned boy. that so many evangelical churches are less than a school. It's, it's not a place of learning. Now, now uh, Pelican is right. The church is a lot more than a school. It's a, it's a place of worship. It's a, it's a place of fellowship. It is a, a, a place of evangelism, a place of reaching out in, in missions and, and helping people in need. But, boy, it's also got to be a school and so yeah. many of our churches are not schools. Amen. Amen to that. One of the guys that uh, that uh, is co- that was coming uh, that will be joining us with the Jehovah's Witness study was uh, two men and a, and a, and a lady, and uh, one of the men was probably 75 and had been a Jehovah's Witness since he was like five. So, you, you know, you're talking wow. 70 years in the church. Wow. With him was another man about 50 years old, and uh, kind of asked him his story. He grew up in an AME Zion uh, Baptist church. I don't know if they have those where you're at, uh, but in the South, they're, they're all over. And yeah. uh, he had a lot of questions about the doctrine of the Trinity and a lot of questions about the deity of Christ. How can God die on the cross? How does Jesus not know, uh, you know, the, the hour of the, the coming if he's God? And yeah. He said, I just never got answers to these questions. And the older gentleman who was sitting next to him, like 10 years prior, had came to his door and had converted him. And uh, he talked about how he wrote, uh, the guy wrote a letter to his church saying, uh, I'm I'm resigning as a church member. Uh, I no longer believe uh, the, you know, the statement of belief and I've become a Jehovah's Witness. And I don't believe the doctrine of the Trinity. And uh, the pastor wrote back saying, uh, well, you know, that's no big deal. You don't have to believe the Trinity in order to be a Christian. And uh, that just solidified him more. So why not be a Jehovah's Witness then if you don't have to believe the Trinity? You know, is it, you just want yeah. me here for my tithe money or, or as a doctrinal conviction. And he left. He left, and he is now a Jehovah's Witness. And I was telling my wife, I bet there is you know, the kingdom halls are full of people like that. Oh, yeah. I can tell you my own reading and studying in this regard, Devin, that uh, uh, I read an article that said that uh, 70% of the people who joined the Mormon church were at one time in an evangelical church. 
and that 70% of the people that joined the Jehovah's Witnesses were at one time in a Catholic church. And uh, oh. that that's an amazing statistic. Um, you know, it, what what what's going on in these churches that people would embrace an Aryan Christology or uh, or the tritheism of Joseph Smith? Uh, I, again, I think it is the it is the clear indication that that our churches really do need to be schools, places of learning, places of engaging and equipping people. And look, I'm not I'm not suggesting that we it not also be a place of counseling and uh, a place right. of helping the poor and a place of taking the Lord's Supper and baptism. I mean, the church is all is much bigger than a school. It's the, the, but the problem is that uh, sometimes the school has evaporated, and that's uh, yeah. that's a that's a big weakness. Yeah, yeah, the church has done a great job, I think, in, in loving the homeless and helping people and counseling and that stuff. And you know, I don't want to I don't want to take anything away from that because I think that yeah. you know, praise God, that is one of the conditions of being a Christian. Uh, but the problem is, is you, you still have to have that based on correct doctrine. You know, I'm, I remember going to a church when we first moved here, the Pentecostal church, and they're looking for, for home group leaders. And this church probably had 500 people in it. And uh, so me and my wife had became these small group leaders, and there were several others. And I was thinking, you know, there's not – they don't do a theological test to even know – to see what you believe, to even know if you're even orthodox. And uh, about a month or two down the road, we found out there was a gentleman. Um, he it was probably the largest of the home groups. He was getting almost 100 people a week in his group. And it uh, turns out he was a oneness Pentecostal. And wow. utterly, yeah. his, dad, his dad was a UPC pastor, and it utterly denied yeah. the doctrine of the Trinity. And I'm sure. thinking, man, that is we got to be careful about just throwing anybody uh, into teaching classes. Well, like you, there have been many times I've wanted to find out what a particular church believed, go on the web. There's no statement of faith. Uh, I think how in the world uh, can we have a a church that isn't very clear about what they believe? And so, you know, doctrine and instruction, orthodoxy, uh, apologetics, these these are not small things. These are very critical things. And um, it, it also indicates that people like you and your ministry, how important it is, uh, how important it is to be able to listen to a podcast like yours, where you, you mm-hmm. are uh, learning about theology and philosophy. You talk about Thomas Aquinas. You talk about the Book of Romans and uh, it's important that people are even able to call your your podcast. So uh, there's a lot of work to be done, and and it's it's uh, we have to be diligent in in following out the calling, the apologetic calling the Lord has given us. Hey Amen. And I think you know if we can just develop a love for doctrine, it's almost as though in today's age, yeah. you know, doctrine is a dirty word, and uh, they they think it's yes. here people away but even you know the high schoolers we teach you know we do uh, apologetics with uh, high schoolers 15 to 20 high schoolers every tuesday they love it they absolutely yep. love it they eat it up they want more 
I go to Kershaw Prison once a week. I'm doing an apologetics wow. class in the prison. They love wow. it. They, they, yeah. It's their highlight of the week. They, they love listening to debate. They love learning theology. Half of them are not Christians. Half of them are Muslims, uh, Wiccans, and atheists. But it's wow. the highlight of the week. They love coming, and they love being able to, to think through the questions. So people on all walks of life, it's not just uh, apologetics. It's not just for eggheads. It's, it's like it really yeah. touches people. All people, all walks of life. I think you're right on the money. I think that uh, the thoughtful layperson, they love it. They they enjoy hearing a presentation and uh, a defense of of Christian doctrine. And um, that's where I'd like to talk with a lot of the pastors and tell them that uh, uh, doctrine, theology, apologetics, um, worldview ideas, this is not dry. This this can really draw people to your church. Yeah. Hey, man, I, I, you know, I wonder how people think about anything else sometimes. It's like, you know, for me, I just, I, I love it. It's, uh, it's my life. Well, let's look at uh, part three on this, uh, thinking sure. through the objections uh, to the Christian faith. And we just wrapped up last week with our high schoolers uh, this, this issue of uh, do all religions lead to God? Uh, you know, we live in a climate now where, boy, you're you're a bigot if you don't uh, say yeah. all truth claims are equally valid. You have a great um, kind of distinction there between, I think, social pluralism and, and metaphysical pluralism or something to that effect. Talk about that. Yeah. Can all religions be true? Yeah. What I think is very helpful, Devin, is to point out that, um, you know, Social pluralism, the the idea that uh, that you know you have many people from different backgrounds, uh, uh, that's certainly something Christianity has always affirmed that uh, the church is made of Jews and Gentiles. But um, a religious pluralism that says all religions can can lead to God, you know, that all religions are ultimately true. Well. It bumps into three fundamental problems. The first one is that these religions really teach different things. Some of them teach one God, others many gods, others the universe is God. Some of them, even like primitive Buddhism, says no God. So they're they're not teaching minor differences. There are fundamental differences. The second point is there's no way to kind of boil them down to the lowest common denominator because even – even though Hindus and Buddhists and Christians and Jews and Muslims have similar ethical principles, um, in reality, Christian ethics are based upon the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And then, and then thirdly, these religions contradict each other. I mean, uh, Christians say Jesus is God incarnate, and Muslims say, no, he's not. And uh, both of those views can't be true, and one or the other is true logically. And so I don't think enough people have really thought carefully about the tremendous challenges to the belief that all religions could somehow be true. But you've pointed out, I think, the, the challenge, and that is many people today in our kind of postmodern, our relativistic, uh, very inclusivistic culture – uh, we think to disagree with someone is somehow to be uncharitable 
or even worse, to be a bigot. And that's that's where I think we need to challenge some of these, some of the faulty thinking that exists in our culture. Yeah, I could could not agree more with you, uh, folks. If you would like to call in, we got about so oh, 25 minutes or so left. Seven six zero five four two. 3907-760-542-3907. And uh, I think it's, you know, it's one of the things I really appreciate about you. I love the, um, I would recommend all all the people listen to that particular series you did, um, The Golden Rule of Apologetics. Mm. And uh, it really is, you know, they can't, they can't come after us for being nasty and mean if we're just, wanting to have reasonable uh, debate. Maybe you could just yeah. talk for a second about the laws of logic and why uh, some of these, you know, for example, Islam says God has no son. Christianity says Jesus is God the son. Um, with that debate, in fact, we, we saw several well-known apologists and thinkers um, kind of come down on some different sides on that. What are What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, very much so. I mean, even if you take the religions that have the most in common, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, uh, they conflict when it comes to the person of Christ, because Christianity says it is an essential belief that Jesus is God incarnate, God in human flesh. And um, Jews and Muslims say, well, whoever Jesus is, whether he was a prophet or whether he was a deceiver, he's not God incarnate. Well, you can't have Jesus as God incarnate and not God incarnate. That's the law of non-contradiction. Not both for the law of non-contradiction. And it's either or. The, the law of excluded middle says Jesus is either God incarnate or he's not. There's no third or middle position possible. And so it's not, uh, uh, it, is, it is not intolerant. It is not violating principles of charity to say, look, uh, we're dealing with truth here, and uh, if we're going to be intellectually honest, we have to recognize that even Jews, Christians, and Muslims, the monotheistic Middle Eastern tradition, even there there are sharp differences. And I, uh, I think that's where it is very critical for us not only to help people in the church to appreciate the laws of logic and critical thinking, but also to help people in our society to realize that, look, toler to tolerate someone is to recognize we do have differences. I, I don't tolerate people whom I agree with. I tolerate people whom I disagree with. And I think we have uh, we've kind of fallen into the, the politically correct trap of um, – you know, we we can't show any difference without being kind of narrow-minded, minded fundamentalists. And I think it is, uh, I think it's, I think it's very critical to be able to point out that uh, the different religions of the world make very different claims. And if we compare them and contrast them, um, <clears throat> the idea that they're all true is really logically absurd. And I, you know, I don't, I don't understand why, uh, I don't understand why that's so difficult. I, there's an interfaith dialogue about an hour from me at a, they're actually doing it at Islamic mosque with Muslims, wow. 
uh, Christians and Jews. And, um, I mean, it's just so interesting. You have a group of people. I mean, they're getting big turnout. You know, 100 people show wow. up. And then they'll have a representative from Islam, Judaism, Christianity. They take a passage of scripture, and they all kind of give their take. And it's just this kind of idea that, well, we're all right. We, You know, uh, love is the underlining factor. And and I'm just thinking as I'm hearing them talk, well, if I don't understand how you can't see if this if, if the if the person representing Judaism is right, then the other guy can't be right. But it's like That's if right. they just wash it and bathe it in love, somehow they're both right. So uh, it's just it's interesting. Yeah. It's uh, it's very interesting. It's uh, yeah, <laughs> good stuff. How do we uh, let's see? How do we respond to the world's religions? Um, kind of one of the questions is: some people will, um, you know, if, if Jehovah's Witness or Mormon or something like that, and I know that's not a world religion, but more of a cult group, um, they're reluctant to answer the door. They're reluctant to engage with them. How should we as Christians respond to our Muslim friends or uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or or whatever? I, I think it's I think it's absolutely critical to be able to uh, to prepare yourself to have some interaction to to carry on a dialogue and to say look um, um, Christianity says particular things it says that that uh, excuse me God created the world and He created all people in His image and therefore everybody has some awareness of God. But the Bible also says that humans are fallen. Uh, there is a spiritual warfare that takes place among counterfeit religions. And I, I think we begin to bring in that, you know, the, the Bible also says that uh, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. And I think that uh, it's very important to kind of uh, bring out what, the Bible indicates ab- about uh, the truth and falsity of religions. Devin, I, I think it's a mistake to say that everything in non-Christian religions are false. I think they're going to get some things right because they're made in the image of God and because God created the world, there is general revelation. They're going to get right. some things right. But if, But I think it's also true that they're going to get some critical things wrong, Uh, often uh, a denial of salvation by grace, uh, often a very distorted view of the person of Christ, uh, and various things like that. So I think it's important to kind of come up with a a perspective of what Scripture teaches about the religions, and then to to learn to, to talk with them. I mean, Again, I think if we were doing a good job in our churches, we can help people feel a bit more comfortable. You know, it can be intimidating. Somebody knocks on your door and they say, well, I don't believe in the Trinity. I don't believe in the deity of Christ. I don't believe in hell. And uh, you look at them and say, wow. But if you have opportunities for people to, to study, I mean, when I was a young Christian, we used to role play. We would have Bible studies and I would come in and act like Jehovah's Witness or act like a Mormon, and the other people would have to respond to me. And I had been around them enough to pretty much know how they would respond. And, you know, we, we, we actually, it was a time 
we learned a lot. We, we also had a lot of fun kind of going back and forth. And um, it's wonderful when Christians feel confident to be able to talk with other people about their faith. And, you know, I invite the Mormons into my home and I say, you know, can I get you a drink? Let's talk 90 minutes. You know, I'll let you go first. Uh, you take 30, I'll take 30, and then we'll ask each other questions. And, you know, with Mormons, Devin, I'll sometimes say, now I'm going to describe a religion, and I want you to tell me what religion I'm talking about. So I'll talk about a religion that says the Bible has been corrupted and God brought forth a prophet with a new text of Scripture. And I'll say, now who do you think I'm talking about? And they'll say, well, you're talking about our church, the Latter-day Saints. And they say, no, I'm talking about Islam. And they're jolted. <laughs> They don't realize the parallels that exist between Mormonism and Islam. And so, yeah. you know, some of those things I've learned just by doing, by talking, by, by interacting. And it's not an easy thing to try to persuade somebody to give up their uh, non-Christian religious beliefs. But I've seen it happen. And it's an incredible wow. thing when, when God's grace uh, uses our our imperfect efforts to do it. But um, I'll tell you, I think there are two areas of apologetics that are very critical today. One of them is science. That's one of the reasons I work at Reasons to Believe. But I'll tell you the other, I think the other is the whole question of world's religions or new religious movements. Uh, the two enterprises I think that are very strong in our world are science and religion. And uh, I get uh, questions on both of them. Yeah. Very good, very good. And I and I I think you're right as well. And is that you know you're saying as as you were younger you guys would do role playing. What I've seen is when when people get some apologetics behind them, they're more willing to share the faith if they think that they have answers. Yeah. Because uh, I think a lot yeah. of people don't do it because they're they're. The number one thing they're scared of is they're going to, you know, get asked something they don't know how to answer. And so they just, it's easier just to not say anything. But, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, the role-playing, stuff like that, apologetics really kind of bolts, uh, gets them a little more bold. Yes. All right, so uh, you got one little uh, section in, in here always, uh, or also, doesn't hypocrisy invalidate? Christianity. This one comes up a lot. Well, Christians being a bunch of hypocrites. How do you uh, how do you respond? Yeah, to that? it's a it's a very important one because I, I I think many people many people Devin look at at Christian churches or they have a bad experience at their church or or they see TV preachers who have you know taken money uh, from their church or teach all kinds of strange issues. I, I think it's I think it's very important to try to help non Christians understand what Christianity says. I mean, I've had difficulties with Christians. I, I'm sure there are people who would say I've had difficulties with Ken Samples. But one thing the Bible is very clear about, it's clear that we're we're broken, we're fallen, we're sinful. And uh I think we need to have realistic expectations about uh how Christianity uh, is to be lived out. And I, I think that we also need to recognize that uh, um, 
just because people can't always live up to their their moral ideals, that doesn't mean that somehow their their beliefs are false. And so I like to share with people that, you know, I am a hypocrite. Uh, I'm not a hypocrite with a capital H. That is, I don't live a double life. I don't have uh, one wife and family here and a mistress there and live totally contradictory or sinful lives. But I am, I am a hypocrite in the sense that uh, I struggle with selfishness. Um, I wrestle with, with envy and pride. Um, I don't always live up to my moral ideals. Uh, and there is a necessity for me to confess my sins, to repent, uh, to read 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. So I, I like to tell people that uh, uh, Jesus came into the world to save hypocrites like me and and like you and right. like all of right. us. And um, I also like to point out that uh, but there are many Christian people who who take their their moral principles, who take their convictions very seriously. And when I encounter Christians who have been hurt by other Christians, I try to encourage them to, to work it through, to um, come to grips with it, to, to learn to forgive and to learn to recognize that, that uh, Christ doesn't have a perfect church, uh, but he has right. a church that has been forgiven by, by the blood that he shed on a Roman cross. Right. Amen. Thankful for that. If we were, as the Bible says, if he's to count our sins against us, who could stand? Wow, yes. Let's see. So you have a, another section. Um, don't I have a right to do what I want with my own body? I know this is one of the objections we hear a lot with uh, with abortion. And yeah. Um, yeah, what is your 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 view on how Christians maybe can uh, do some evangelism uh, with our pro-choice friends? How do we engage them? How do we uh, how do we how do we have good good dialogue that will create uh, more light than heat? Yeah, and I I really kind of saved that third section for you know some of these very practical objections and and obviously we we live in a, a time in which people feel they're autonomous, that they, you know, it's their body. I can do what I want with it. This isn't any of your, your business or, or your uh, concern. Um, I think it's very important to be able to convey to people why we believe in the sanctity of human life. We, we believe in what is called the Imago Dei. We believe people are made in the image of God. And because they're made in the image of God, they have an inherent dignity and moral worth. I, I think the, the, one of the fundamental flaws of naturalism as a worldview, of atheism as, as a belief system, is they really can't ground things like human rights and human dignity. I, I don't think that the Eastern religions have a real answer to, to why it's wrong to, to, to harm uh, children and people who are innocent, and and that's where I think we can talk about issues, ethical issues that are so critical. I mean, um, when we think about uh, gender issues today, when we 
when we see kind of our culture inflamed about racial issues, we can say, look, um, regardless of your skin color, regardless of your gender, regardless of your class or your appearance or your class standing uh, or age, all human beings, uh, because they're made in God's image, have dignity. And that includes the the small human person in the in the womb. It also extends to to the the aged person who is suffering with with dementia. Uh, that there is a sacredness of of human life because of that that image that um, that imprint that God has placed upon us. And um, I think that the image of God, Devin, really gives us a lot of capital to make a case against abortion, to, to critique uh, euthanasia, uh, physician-assisted suicide, to talk about the importance of things like adoption as an, as an option to abortion. And, um, you know, that, that's a deeply biblical view, that, uh, that human life really does matter, and uh, that when we come into the Church of Jesus Christ, uh, the Lord accepts the Jews and, and the Gentiles. Uh, you know, there's no difference between male and female, uh, no difference between um, rich and poor, uh, that Christ has called us to, to live uh, in a respectful community and, and even to respect people who disagree with us. So I think, um, I think Christianity and and the teaching of Scripture about God creating the dust of the ground, the breath of life, that man became a living soul, that we bear the image of God. These are, these are, this is what powerful capital to use to argue for the, the sanctity of human life and, and, and to try to persuade that, you know, we may be different. We, we may be different in skin color. We may be different uh, in gender. We... Some of us may be rich, others poor, but in Christ we are all one. In the gospel we are all one, and God sent his son to, to save people. So I love to talk about the image of God and how practical and how purposeful it can be in solving some of these difficult problems we have in our culture today. Yeah, I, I think the whole issue of, of uh, we're just, man, we're living in turbulence times now with the race relations, uh, the election, etc. Uh, I was going to just ask your thoughts on this. You don't have to uh, offer any if you'd rather not, but during this political season, uh, some Christians find themselves not liking either candidate very much. Uh, as Christians, how do we respond? Uh, I know, you, you know we're not saying who to vote for, but how do we respond kind of in a climate where just the climate that we're in. How, what, what, what are your yeah, thoughts it's, on it's, that? It's a, it's a question I think many Christians have. And I, I would say, Devin, that when we look at Scripture, we realize that God has ordained government, that government comes from God. There is no government that uh, is not ordained by God. And, and we are to submit to the government, and we are to respect governmental authorities. We're to pray for people. Uh, we pray even for people we didn't vote for or are not terribly impressed with. Uh, 
but we also recognize that if the government tells us to do something God forbids, we can't do it. Or if God forbids mm. something the government commands, we, we have to, like the apostles said in the book of Acts, we have to obey God rather than man. But government is critical, and God uses both noble and less than noble governments. And I try to emphasize that I think it's critically important to – Scripture tells us explicitly to pray for our leaders, to to pray mm. that uh, they will be good leaders and – uh, they will lead our our uh, society, our culture, our nation uh, into peace and and prosperity. And so, I think the I think the, I guess the word I want to give to many Christians who may feel kind of um, uh, you know disappointed or depressed about the the political condition to remember that God is sovereign. And you know, Paul said that all government comes from God and. And at that time, that would have even been Nero. So God uses even corrupt governments for his sovereign purpose. And I I think the wonderful thing, Devin, is that uh, uh, the great promise in the book of Romans that God is working all things together for good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purposes. So, yeah, I mean, I look at the political process, and uh, I'm not always terribly happy with the candidates that – are up there to, for consideration, but I realize that the Lord is always doing things be, behind the scenes, and I try to, I try to discharge my civic responsibilities as a citizen of the United States with, with care and with reflection, and I try to be motivated by freedom and by justice and and the noble areas of life, but I also recognize that uh, that political governments here on this earth are not the kingdom of God, and that uh, there'll come a day when God will bring all government to an end, and and he'll reign through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, yeah, it's discouraging at times, and uh, I think we have seen some things in our nation the last few years that make some of us a bit concerned about um, uh, issues of life and issues of marriage. But uh, one of the things I like about being Reformed is my belief, and it's a biblical belief, you don't, you don't have to be a Calvinist to believe in the sovereignty of God. That's a very comforting belief, knowing that the Lord is a king, he's a ruler, and he's working out all things in accord with his plan and his purposes. Uh, Paul says that in Ephesians 1.11. So, uh, you know, be of good cheer and uh, <laughs> discharge your... Your, your responsibility in both of the kingdoms. Amen. There you go. Uh, we got just a minute here. Uh, Professor Samples, are you guys still doing a podcast now, or are you not uh, doing that we, anymore? We have, yeah. We, um, we ended the Straight Thinking podcast. We have another podcast uh, that I do that's called Imago Dei, which is Latin for the image of God. And uh, we've kind of set it up more for people who – uh, are interested in donating to the ministry, but um, I am—I've uh, shared with some of my friends here that I would—I would love to maybe revive straight thinking. And so we did about 300 shows. They're all archived on the Reasons to Believe website. And if you donate to the ministry, you know, even as much as $10 a month, you get all of these new free. 
podcasts. So I'd encourage people to go on the Reasons to Believe website and check out some of our old podcasts and maybe consider some of our new ones. And uh, I also want to encourage people, Devin, to to take strong interest in your ministry. You have a very interesting podcast. You cover lots of wonderful topics and uh, uh, I appreciate you. I appreciate your your love for philosophy, but also your your very deep uh, commitment to scripture. And I think you handle challenging and difficult issues very well. I think that's something I noticed about you, that you're very careful in the way you deal with controversial issues. And I, I appreciate that. That's something that I think uh, other apologists might learn from you. Well, I appreciate that. I'll tell you, that made my made my next 10 years getting a compliment from Professor Samples. But uh, thank you so much. Again, you're, uh, you're with Reasons to Believe. Where can, where can people find your, your blog and, uh, and Reasons to Believe yes. site? Yes, you can go on the web, reasons.org, and uh, click on uh, the website and, and look for uh, Ken Sample's blog. I have a blog called Reflections where we put up an article every week, a new article every week. Um, and there's plenty of science space articles. Uh, uh, we have a number of Ph.D. scientists here who are experts in the area of cosmology and the areas of uh, the biological sciences. So Reasons to Believe is a very broad and deep apologetic organization. And I'm the non-scientist. I work in the fields of theology and philosophy. So I'm a bit of the oddball, but it's uh, <laughs> it's really a, a fine ministry. And Dr. Hugh Ross is a person of real integrity. I, uh, I've, I've seen many Christian organizations, and, and Hugh is one of the persons that I think has the most integrity in living out the Christian life and, and also having a, a ministry that uh, has integrity at, at, at its core. So I'm, I'm proud of the work we do here. Amen. And, and I know thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians uh, have benefited from the work of Reasons to Believe and uh, just uh, very thankful for your ministry and uh, hope to have you on again in the future. And uh, thanks for, for taking two hours out of your day and coming and uh, chatting with us again, folks, get his book without a doubt. We'll put it on the uh, Facebook page, a link there. Uh, you can get that and highly recommend it. If you have kids who are going to college, if you have grandkids, please get, get this book. It, it's uh, you're investing in eternity. You really are. So. Thank you, Devin. So that's what, what a what a real yeah. honor to be with you. God bless you and your family and your ministry. Thanks again. God bless. Okay. Bye-bye. All right, folks, join us again next week. We will be back for another edition of Theology Matters. Again, we are going to be uh, spending August uh, doing some uh, shows on the creation evolution issue, God and science. And if you want to listen to another show we did with Professor Samples, you can find that in the archives. Again, uh, Theology Matters on Facebook. Um, or you can just Google. It would probably be easier just to Google Ken Samples, um, Theology Matters with Palouse. And uh, you can hear the show we did on uh, God and Science when he was on. Great thinker, great man. Uh, just absolutely honored to have him on the show. 
and uh, we look forward to bringing on more shows, God willing. Like I say, we plan on uh, maybe doing a, a name change on the podcast, uh, but uh, we're going to keep the format the same. Uh, ours is uh, theology and apologetics. You know, there's times we'll talk politics and uh, and those kind of issues, but we're going to keep the format the same. Uh, that is just the, the ministry and the gift that God has uh, given us and laid on our hearts. And so though the, the name may change, the format uh, will certainly stay uh, the same. We do have some um, new microphones and headsets and, you know, folks, we've been doing the show for about four years. Uh, we don't make a dime from it. You know, we don't get paid, you know, anything for it. Um so, you know, you don't necessarily have the money to buy new equipment, but we were able to uh, get a very nice new microphone and headset and uh, hopefully get that figured out. And come August, start uh, start uh, using that and hopefully have the, the changes and our name and all that taken care of. So I want to thank you guys again for listening and uh, hope you guys uh, will stay with us again uh, in October. We plan on doing the Reformation Month. So, you know, stay with us with that and uh, call in, let your friends know, and uh, just want to thank you again for tuning in. God bless.